This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's our first Thursday after the municipal elections. The results did not yield many surprises, but they were followed by sweeping new rules for zoning and development that would cut the authority of conservation authorities, give more leeway to developers, and allow up to three homes on most single-family lots. Let's get right to it. And now, it's time to tune into the town. Now I'm joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, and Anna Bailau, former Toronto councillor for Ward 9 Davenport, and former deputy mayor. Welcome all. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I want to begin with David. And so far, the reviews for these very sweeping new changes that probably have not been fully digested have been pretty positive. What is your take? Well, and I can understand why it's positive, because uh, this is an attempt to try, a, a, a good solid attempt, to try and increase the supply of housing. And everybody talks about the importance of the increase in the supply of housing. I have a bit of a different take, because, well, I agree with that part, and laud those parts of, it, of the plan that, that, that call for more uh, housing. There are four items which I think people should pay attention to. First of all, this is not a plan for affordable housing. There is no affordable strategy, affordable housing strategy in this plan. Secondly, it's it's a and you mentioned in the it's mentioned in the news. This is a continuing war, been going on now for some time with the conservation authorities, who've been guarding our environmental assets now for seventy five years. But this government is continued to war against it. Three. It also gobbles up a recipe for gobbling up more farmland at a time when food security and food productivity are really important to us. And finally, even when they're dealing with some way in which they're going to cheapen the cost of housing by getting rid of development charges, those development charges are not got rid of. They're just put on the city at a time when the city can ill afford it. So I think while they may be lauding certain aspects of it, and other people can do that, I think you should pay attention to those four really vitally important things in the future. Okay, let's go to Anna Bailau. Housing was your file uh, when you were a councillor very recently. What do you think of these changes? So, so Libby, there, there's a lot of good changes in there um, that, you know, the, the city has been calling. Some of them, the city has been ahead of them. You know, you talked about the three units per lot. I mean, that's what we have right now in the city of Toronto. So some of this stuff is things that, that a lot of people have been called. I, I do uh, um, caution because this will have an impact on the market affordability. But as uh, David said, it will not tackle the deeper affordable housing. And I keep saying this. You know, we cannot fund our way out of this. Absolutely. You know, it's not only governments that need to invest, but we cannot also build our way out of this. We need both. And so this strategy is important, is needed, but it will never create the deeper affordable housing. We still need governments to invest. And with this, I, I emphasize two issues that, that David brought, the, the, the conservation authorities and also the, the 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 growth. How to pay for this growth? It is clear that, and everybody agrees, it's it's it, it's costing a lot in DCs. So let's yes, let's remove some of these projects that maybe should not be on the back of just new homeowners and just new renters. But then who's going to pay? The government is only have ha- is only having, in my opinion, half of the conversation. They're saying, okay, let's remove it, but but it's not saying, okay, let's get to the table and and let's. Have it. They're just being basically, as David said, giving the bill to the city, and the city has the least amount of revenue tools to pay for these things. So it feels like we're inviting to being invited to a great party, but at, at the end of the night, we're being given the bill. That's how it feels. Uh, yep, uh, yep. Karen, uh, what is your take? I mean, you know, 
What we've seen lately is that basic services are really not happening that well in the city. And we're just getting to some of the infrastructure to support the people that already live here. So uh, if we build all this more housing, uh, how are we going to pay for basic things for those people? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that we we bought into this myth that if we just lifted the zoning, then it would be this panacea to our housing problem. And it's a myth. That's all that it is. It is one big myth. I mean, Toronto has been building housing more than any other city in North America. We have nothing but housing. We have nothing but condos that have popped up everywhere. We have our, our housing sector is booming. Construction sector is booming. We, it's not a lack of permission. And to suggest that, you know, it's just NIMBYism that's preventing affordable housing is, is quite frankly, lunacy and a myth that needs to be dispelled. It, even if you were to uh, allow apartment buildings to be built everywhere in the city, which, again, I think is lunacy, where are you going to find the people to do it? You know, there's, there's construction shortage, like there's, there's labor shortages everywhere. We're already at our maximum. We're already building what we can build. And if, in certain areas of the city, I'm going to suggest that we're building too much density because it is putting pressure on existing infrastructure. Uh, like and, the part of the city that we are sitting in right now, it, uh, it's a fabulous place. There are all these condo towers, but, you know, there are not enough green, like there's no place for people to even take their dogs, right? Right, and same thing at Young and Eglinton, and same thing around, uh, you know, uh, on Bayview Avenue. Like there's building and construction everywhere. You can't even get around the city, there's so much construction. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is to affordable housing. I, I do think it's specifically investing in um, affordable places for people to live with some kind of dispensation that everybody contributes to, whether it's existing homeowners, ex- developers, uh, levels of government. But it's not, it, it's this, this idea that these sweeping changes or the panacea is, is just wrongheaded and quite frankly needs to be unpacked for what it is. Uh, I just looked at a headline that said condo listings are down 16%. Thank goodness. I mean, obviously, if you have more supply, prices will ultimately come down. And they're they're coming down, it seems to me, already because of these interest rate hikes. Some people say we're heading to a real estate crash. What's going to get built then? Exactly. David, go ahead. For for, for sure. The... the, 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 uh, I might say that the notion that we just bought into, we can easily move density and that fixes it all. That's not on. I, th- I think they've stayed away from affordable housing because increasingly, um, how do I put this best? Affordable housing used to be a smaller percentage of people looking for affordable housing. The whole issue of affordability of housing now touches a good chunk of the middle class. And so they're, they're not sure what to do because what it does require is a constant, continuing, imaginative relationship between governments and the private sector, between developers, co-op building, all of those kinds of ways in which to go about it. But it does require a continuing participation by the government, by, the, by all three levels of government and the private sector. That's what they're not doing. It, it, it's, it's all just... For me, for, it seems to me they're living in a, in a world they've, they've accepted a couple of myths, as has just been pointed out, and, and they just keep on building on those myths. But we're not going to, they're not building affordable housing. Um, somebody mentioned nimbyism. That's now like the worst insult that can be thrown at you. You're a nimby. And, and people keep referring to all the nimbies. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that that's the issue. And people say, uh, all kinds of things that are just not true. I was interviewing some experts yesterday and they said, well, uh, I asked about heritage preservation, which I think is important, uh, on the record saying, and it, there is such a thing as the heritage of the city, both the natural heritage, which you don't want to wreck Absolutely. and the built heritage, but they're saying, oh, neighborhood Groups just use that as an excuse to block all this excellent housing. And and some of the so-called excellent housing that you see going up is really kind of crappy. This, the, the, the cities around the world that people like to go and visit are those yeah. cities which have preserved their heritage. Right. Imagine if they built, you know, condos, uh, uh, took down the Coliseum. <laughs> Or the Eiffel Tower. I mean, put up a bunch of condos. That's right. 
And in those neighborhoods, because I represented some of those neighborhoods, we're not, it's not like they're tearing down a house and, you know, proposing to put in townhouses. They're proposing to put in um, another single family home that's 15% bigger than the one that was currently on there. Or there, uh, I've seen in places like Etobicoke, probably down the street from Doug Ford, where they want to take one down and put two luxury houses on a, on a big lot. That's not affordable housing. That's not affordable housing at all. And so, yeah, I, anyway, it's just, it part, it's so frustrating because there are, there are, you know, again, I, I wish I knew what the solution was because then I would have much more arsenal in my, in my back pocket, but, what, where we're going right now is not going to get us to where we want to be. Yeah, the, the other question I have, and I, uh, um, I might get called something for this, is that, you know, as a young woman, I lived in New York City for a while. And nobody, even with a great job, expected to be able to even rent a place on your own in New York City until you became very established. So Toronto has come to that place so I'm asking, is it reasonable? I mean, I don't know what they, it, it, things did happen in New York. I think they made Brooklyn cool and people bought, bought stuff there while it was still affordable. But Anna, I mean, do you have a, a thought about that? It's just, um, things have changed. You know, we kept saying we're a world class city. Well, you know, now I guess we are. Can you hear me now, Libby? Yes, I can. Oh, okay, sorry, because I've been trying to jump in <laughs> for a while and I wasn't able to. I, I, I just need to go back to a little bit of, of this the, the, the supply issue because I do think that it is important that it's not the only solution, but it is part of the solution. We're, the the population is significantly increasing over the next few years. And, um, and, and we need to build a supply. And the problem that is that we've only been able to build that supply in about 30% of our land because of, of our zoning rules right now. And so it is important that, and I think everybody wants that. They want a little bit more of housing opportunities of gentle density. They don't want a city just of single family homes and 80 story buildings. And I think it is really important that we reform our system to have more of that missing middle being done so that we we, we don't have just these two pockets of, of, of growth happening. So, it is not the full solution. It will not, we will need, as David was saying, the, the funding to create the deeper affordability, but it does have an impact in prices. And most importantly, it does have an impact on who will be able to afford to live in some of our neighborhoods. And so this, I, I just wanted to make these, uh, these couple of points. Yeah, but at the end of the day, developers are only going to build the things they can make lots of money on. No, that's not true. No? If I could say so. Okay. We, we, we tend to beat up on developers, and, 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 and we should not. Um, we, we should hold political representatives accountable. But developers, of course, are, are in, business, in business for building things. And it's worthwhile remembering that there's a difference between simply land speculation and making money out of land speculation and building. If you go down, exactly. down at, look at, look at uh, St. Lawrence neighborhood, uh, there's, a, I guess, in the order of about 10,000 people live there now. Um, and, and that's all co-ops. It's interesting to note that three, uh, four of the 10 co-ops that are, were there were, were all done by developers because developers are also builders. The good developers are also builders. You have to really work hard to make sure you got the difference in your mind. But don't confuse land land speculation with real honest to goodness building. Okay, I stand corrected. Um, so, where is this going to leave us? Also, in in terms of you know infrastructure deficit, Karen. Well, we just have to look to Collingwood to see what happened there, and that they weren't investing in their infrastructure, and then they they don't have enough um, underground sewer and water. Uh, infrastructure to support one more single home. So they've put an absolute cap on new development in Congress. Now, I'm not going to suggest that's going to happen in Toronto, but, but the reality is, you know, again, there's a disconnect because we've had, we've seen huge growth in the city of Toronto and it hasn't paid for itself. You know, our, our capital hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Our operating deficit gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So this idea that you, you know, you build all this housing and then suddenly, you know, you, with property tax and land transfer tax and development fees, you can afford to run a city. Um, we've seen that's not the case. And so the other piece of this puzzle is 
um, how are we going to how are we going to support the, the infrastructure to support what we say we want in terms of population increasing? And you know, it, it's from everything from roads to parks to the water fountains turning on to having schools in the right location, and none of those discussions are happening. So, from my perspective, yeah. I think the province is actually creating. It, it, it's diverting the real discussions that need to be had. It's kind of, it's sort of say, oh, look over here, look over here, what we're doing, aren't we great? But realize, but it's not great. It's not great at all. It's just going to continue to propel and perpetuate the existing problems that we have. It's, yeah. it's not, you're, she's absolutely right, Lib. It's not just the building the places, it's you're, you're, you're building communities, not warehousing people. That's what that I, I get every time I get a feeling from the province of what they've really got in mind. They don't really much care about the quality of the community that they're talking about building because they're not building communities. I don't think in their own mind they're just building houses and and therefore racking up figures. So I'm I'm really concerned that they. Karen's right. They're not paying attention to the infrastructure costs. In fact, they pay so little about it. Uh, to it, that they are, they're willing to put more burden on the city for infrastructure when we, it needs to be go the reverse. We need more help from the province on putting in infrastructure. Well, that, that, yeah, they're, that, they're, uh, they're is, only having part of the conversation, Lee. They're but, only having part of a conversation. The real conversation of who's going to pay for this growth and how we're going to pay, if it's not the new homeowner, it's not happening. And that can be very, very uh, uh, bad for for even the housing conversation. Because if you talk talk about NIMBYs now, when people start seeing their infrastructure going even down, it, it they're going to resist this change, resist this growth. Libby will tell you that they're already seeing that. And yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. We're already seeing that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that conversation is coming very soon because uh, Toronto anyway has a whole of nearly a billion dollars. Uh, so, and we have, we haven't talked about that at all. So I'm expecting, uh, worse things to come. Or, uh, I don't know if in exchange for all that support, Doug Ford will hand over a check to John Tory. I don't know. What do you think, David? Well, I think there probably will be a review of, of the tax structure. We do it from time to time. Uh, who can tax what and, and how, the, how the tax system, how, how do you go about taking money from the public in a fair and equitable way? And, and, and that's, that's something that probably is, should be in the offing right now because governments are desperate, all three or four, Governments are desperately trying to figure out how much how they can spread their money around. There needs to be a more equitable way in which we tax, and that really does require leadership from the province and the federal government. Uh, I'd like to turn to some of the other races. There, there wasn't much in the way of surprises, David. I know you're interested in conservation, and uh, in Caledon, there was a race between two incumbent councillors. One more pro-development than the other, and the other won. Yeah, the, 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 that was quite a race, uh, actually. The, the, uh, the woman who lost was a woman by the name of Innes, uh, who was also, interesting enough, the chair of the Conservation Authority. So and that was a, a very strong race, uh, and uh, I think you're going to see some interesting things in Caledon. In, the, in that area around Caledon and the area around Toronto, there's a lot of interesting things happened as a consequence of the election, and I think you're going to see different attitudes in those councils. Like what? Well, they're going to have a different attitude towards, oh, what do we do with farmland? We haven't, because we're down in the city here. I mean, the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest problems we've got is we can, can continue to gobble up farmland at a time when the world's explaining to us that we need to pay far more attention to our supply of food and, and our ability to carry out uh, taking care of, of our natural heritage. That's absolutely fundamental. And we're, we're just treating it as a secondary or tertiary problem. Anna, do you have a view of that? Uh, it, you know what? It's it, it's um, it's surprising because it's so much more expensive also to build, to sprawl out this growth than to build uh, in urban areas. So, you know, when, when you're putting all this burden on the municipalities to pay for the growth, you're not coming to the table with the conversation. And to go to the more expensive route, to continue to to support policies that actually uh, feed into this sprawl, I just can't wrap my head around it, to be honest with you. It doesn't make environmental sense. It doesn't make, you know, it deals with food security issues, as David was saying, and economically. It's not the most economic way to deal with the issue. 
Karen, do you think uh, that all of this promotes sprawl? Well, if they continue on this current direction by allowing farmland to be used for um, housing development, then absolutely it will. It will. But, you know, on, on another matter of the municipal election, I, I think that um, we're actually in a pretty volatile place, actually, even though the elections have just ended because so many people did not engage in this election. Yeah. And, and I think it would be a, a mistake for any mayor, quite frankly, to believe they have a mandate. They all got elected. That's true. But with so few people voting, um, I think that there has to be a very cautious approach to any bold initiative under the, the, the expectation that there's a mandate. Because I'm not sure, uh, you know, especially in the city of Toronto, I'm not sure anybody has a mandate for anything. I think it has to be renegotiated throughout the next four years because the city, the people have not been engaged. And it would be a mistake to assume that their disengagement is accepted. You know, yeah. I, I'm I'm giving this number advisedly because uh, right after the election, with all polls reporting, we saw a turnout number that said it was 29 percent. And somebody else came out and said, no, it was 39. That's a big discrepancy that we're trying to uh, trying to sort out. But if the 29 percent turnout is correct, it means that John Tory, who won with a landslide, has he got 18 percent of the population by the math. Uh, that's nothing, David. You're laughing. Well, no, only because I, I, I guess you had this discussion almost every election and municipal elections. Worse uh, now. They, they are always been less than the other two, but, but it's, I, I worked at all three levels of the government governments and, and um, the most informed electorate by a country mile on, on the issues that concern it are local governments. Municipal elections have a more informed electorate than the other two. I don't know if people see it that way, but everybody's an expert on their own neighborhood. Everybody's an expert on traffic. Everybody's an expert on schools and what they're doing to their kids and all that stuff. You don't get the same level of awareness and knowledge at the other two levels. So that's all by way of saying that, yes, it may be a smaller percentage, but it's still an informed one. But I think Karen has some really good advice for the mayor of Toronto and other mayors. And that is, be careful assuming that somehow you've got some mandate. What you need to build into your dreams and plans is to make sure you encourage participation from the electorate. Uh, I I would go not so much focus on Toronto. I think this is a much bigger issue because uh, we had a provincial election recently that had about 40% uh, uh, voter turnout, which is Closer Better to than 29. But it was much lower than it was to be. That's what municipalities used to be. And what is scary is that we, we know that the voter turnout was lower everywhere. We know that when there is a very contested municipal race, usually you have much better turnouts. And in municipalities around Toronto, where there was contested races very hot, you know, some of them just by a few hundred votes apart, in some cases, the turnout was even lower than in Toronto. So this is not just a Toronto issue. This is actually a province-wide issue. I think this is an engagement issue. And, and I think we all need to reflect on it and how we can engage people a bit more. Uh, I've, I, I've been talking to people who say, yeah, we have to engage people more. I mean, I remember... Growing up, nobody had to engage me or the people that I know to vote. You know, we we turned 18 and we started to vote and we take that very seriously. I mean, now, you know, what do we have to do? Uh, you know, send a chocolate with the voting card? Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm, I, I don't know what the answer. I, I really don't know what the answer is. You're, if there's if there's really uh, felt issues um, and 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 hot contests, and it it, uh, it does go higher. That's for sure. Um, but I, again, um, I, I don't regard the elections as the only time in which you're engaging people, and so or voters yeah. and and residents and citizens. You know, there's a terrific benefit that comes from a constantly engaging the public in the course of events and, and in your dreams. If John Tory has, a, or any mayor uh, 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 duly elected recently, has a dream, the first place to start spending that dream is, is a cast a wide net amongst the public you represent. 
I thought the Real Deck Park was a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Too bad that he didn't own the land. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's another thing they're talking about is selling surplus land, the province's surplus land, but I don't know how much of that there I w- is. I w- and I would watch that with great, great concern because there are a lot of people that they would know in the land development industry have been perched overlooking those those lands for some time. And and I I, I think you need to make sure that that we get benefit. If anything, if we lose the ownership of the land, there must be enormously, enormous benefits that come our way. Hmm. Libby, the city of Toronto is using its land as a 99-year-old lease and actually using that value to create affordable housing. I mean, they can just use this kind of program. Uh, It's, up and running, and it's, I think, an extremely beneficial way for them to use their land. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, try to get a couple calls in here. We've got Jeff in Bowmanville. Hi, Jeff. Hi. You're on the air. Go ahead. Oh, thank you very much. Um, my uh, comment is that I can appreciate the province's initiatives in terms of increasing the housing supply. And let's be clear, there's only one reason that this has come forward. It's because the greater Golden Horseshoe area is one of the most desirable places in the world for people to live. And we have more people coming from outside the area uh, to to this part of the world every year. We have to accommodate for that. The growth isn't from birth rate, it's from people coming from other parts of the country or other parts of the world. So we have to do something and there has to be a plan. But as um, Libby mentioned in a promo earlier today regarding the plan that you'd heard the comment, the devil is in the details. And um, uh, before we go going there, I just uh, wanted to acknowledge and thank Mr. Crombie for uh, his acknowledgement that uh, not all developers are out for the buck and taking the devil out of developer, uh, because <laughs> there are many that are community-minded. Uh, but regardless, in in light of this uh, plan, and you just touched on it, uh, in terms of surplus lands, one of the details that's really not come to light thus far that I've seen is that it's not just surplus lands owned by the provinces. The province has now instructed all conservation authorities to do inventories of the lands that they hold and comment on that as to what portions of those lands may be suitable for future housing. And um, I think that there will be some people who will view that with possible alarm, that conservation areas may now have uh, housing developments on them or be considered for that. Uh, let alone the, the, the point of, you know, would there be value for the, the dollar, as Mr. Crombie said. But moreover, many of or a substantial portion of lands that form conservation authorities were lands that were donated by environmentally minded citizens who wanted a legacy to have their properties used for public enjoyment and for preservation of the environment. So I, I, I wonder what the, the panel, especially Mr. Crombie, having uh, his experience, uh, would be on that aspect of the plan. Okay, Jeff, I've got to let you go. We are basically out of time, but I'm going to let David respond to that, and then uh, we'll have to uh, leave the discussion for another it's, week. It's a, it's a very complicated one, I, and I don't, don't have an easy answer. Um, clearly, there's land that conservation authorities own that aren't necessarily involved with conservation anymore. But on the other hand, I'm very, very reluctant to, to, to put, a, put a sign up saying, do some studying and sell your land. That's what I think the province is saying. Now, I think there's some good thinking that can go into proper use of land that has conservation about it, but it also has other uses. And you, and we've done with those with, with sports activities, for example. You can have, you can have sports activities on land that's reserved for conservation as well. So there's, there can be multi-use, but I would be very, very careful because there are sharp-eyed people who would like to get land that's close to, uh, co- co- close to conservation lands and build on them. So I'd be very careful. I understand your point, but, uh, keep your, keep your, keep your dukes up. 
Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. I've really got to wrap things up. That, thanks to Jeff. That was a very interesting point that, frankly, I did not know about. And I'm sure we'll be taking up this conversation in the meantime. Thank you so much, Karen Stintz, Anna Bailau, and David Crombie. Thanks, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Okay. We are taking a break, and when we come back, some really surprising results uh, from the census. Uh, We'll get to that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, We have just received some surprising details from last year's census. The proportion of non-religious Canadians has more than doubled in the past 20 years. And now nearly 35% say they have no religious affiliations. And that's up from 16.5% in 2001. And even though Christianity remains the majority religion in Canada, only 53% reported an affiliation with a Christian religion, and that's down 14% from just 2011. So, and what was less surprising, nearly a quarter of the population are immigrants, mostly from India, and that percentage is set to grow. So, uh, I'd like to hear from you. Um, were you surprised by those, especially those religion numbers. Uh, And we've just been talking about building housing and people moving in and uh, the numbers of immigrants and the even larger number of more immigrants expected mean uh, we're going to have to uh, put those people somewhere. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Elise Herzig, Executive Director of Jias Toronto. That is the Jewish Immigrant Aid Society, which aids immigrants uh, of all ethnic backgrounds. And Dr. Sarah Wilkins-Laflamme, who is the Associate Professor and Associate Chair of Undergraduate Studies at the University of Waterloo. Welcome. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Let us begin with uh, Dr. Wilkins Laflamme. Were you surprised by these numbers? Uh, or And uh, I'm, I was also wondering if the way they asked the question might have had some impact on that. So we're talking about the religion census numbers? Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I was surprised about them. These had been trends that had been going on for some time, but uh, when a third, of, when just over a third of the population says they have no religion, that's still a pretty impactful number. Um, and you know, the the way you ask a question in any survey always has a little bit of an impact on on how the answers are shaped or formed in respondents' minds. And so, with the census, it's an open ended question about what is your religion. And so, but there is a little specific box for no religion that you can check, and that that's been the format of the question since uh, 1971. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if it has a, any impact that uh, um, people from certain cultures. It's it's not just a religion; it's a culture. Uh, do you think that might mm-hmm. have had an impact? Yeah, I think you know this. Uh, the way we ask the religious affiliation question is impacted by um, our Christ- kind of our Christian heritage uh, um, in in much of the country, at least for the white, white European settler populations. And so we are still that the, the question dates back to the 19th century uh, that stats can asks. And so yes, it, it, it's a question that assumes that you have this distinct thing that is called religion and that you define as religion um, in your mind. And we know, for example, that that doesn't work so well for certain groups, for example, indigenous peoples in Canada, who tend to see their spiritualities as very much part of their daily lives and don't necessarily distinguish it from other aspects of their way of life. Um, that also goes for, for example, uh, groups in East Asia, um, who might not define what they do as religious, but they do have things like ancestral worship, um, or, you know, they might visit temple, and will define it maybe more in, in spiritual terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's bring in Elise Herzik. Uh, Elise, um, we've seen big numbers of immigrants, more immigrants expected. Do we have what we need to absorb these immigrants? 
Thank you so much, Willie, for the opportunity to talk about this. Actually, what we're seeing now are the problems that Canadians who've been here for a long time also face. Housing is impacting the immigrants. So if there's a housing crisis and someone comes to Canada looking for work and employment and all of a sudden is dealing with inflation, they're facing the same problems. But what we've noticed is there was a really interesting study done by Enveronics that talked about um, how Canadians are actually more and more embracing immigrants, but that the they allude to the study that was done actually by the um, Association for Canadian Studies that the settlement sector that is supposed to support these groups um, has challenges of not being consistently funded. Funding comes year after year, so you can't do long-term planning. And so for these newcomers that are looking ways to build community and belong, the services are inconsistent. And the other thing just to throw in is that as it's becoming more expensive to live in urban centers, many of the immigrants are now looking to smaller cities to to find, you know, to build their lives. And those communities actually are very poorly served because they just don't have the resources that the larger urban centers have. Elise, we've been talking about the drop in religious affiliation. You serve immigrants. Uh, do you expect that to go back up? Or uh, would you say that most of the immigrants do have a religious affiliation? Um, I think for sometimes a newcomer, depending on how a question is phrased, they may or may not be comfortable in answering it. Um, they may still feel that they're precarious in terms of their situation in Canada, and also they may not understand the question as well. So in our study that we're doing now on anti-racism with newcomers, we've come up with a new question, which is, what is something about yourself that would help us better understand you? And then I think we would learn more about religious beliefs, um, gender identity, and things like that. But I think oftentimes for newcomers who are who so badly want to fit in and thrive, they may not be comfortable or the boxes just may not fit the way they see it. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, that's interesting. Let's take a call from Raul in Toronto. Hey, Raul. I was just going to say the same thing. A lot of people who come here, lastly, they, they might want to blend in. So they'll be like uh, Russell Peters said, my dad thought that being Canadian meant um, cooking burgers on a grill. So they're going to look really Canadian today is what his dad said. And we're going to grill up a bunch of burgers to serve to people in the neighborhood. A lot of people, <clears throat> they think, oh, well, there's a lot of hating on Christians now. We're just being confused with Catholics and what allegedly happened many, many years ago. So if I put down that I'm not a Christian, then it'll make me a real Canadian. And really? a lot of them, they know they may not worship Jehovah God. They may be worshiping a cow in India. I've studied religion. They do that. Um, there's a lot of variables, a lot of angles that may result in people not answering honestly. Lastly, when I was a little kid, we used to have a Bible in school for the past 20-odd years. Millennials and, I think, Generation Z, they have gone without Bibles in the school. So that could be a contributing factor as to certain trends or fads that are orchestrated by design. Uh, yeah, and parents uh, don't do and, that. And the terrible times we're living in right now. We need to have more Christianity, more moral compass, more moral fiber. Now you're going to have more loony business and... Okay. Um, yeah, and we have uh, kids who weren't taken to any religious institutions. You know, when it when it comes to the Bible, my other observation is that you kind of need to have read it to uh, get a lot of the great classics of English literature, and uh, that's gone too. Uh, so, you know, what he said was interesting. Um, so I'm just wondering if that number is actually real, or perhaps it's masking people's discomfort or something like that, Dr. Laflamme? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I hear all, all the discussion points, and, and I agree with many of them. Um, I think uh, if we turn to immigrant populations, um, I, I think, you know, there is obviously some adaptation that happens once they arrive and they're trying to figure out what this religion question is in Canada. But we do actually see lower uh, um, non-religion rates amongst immigrant populations. So they are a, a group, if you take them as a whole, and, and that's a, a oversimplification, of course, but they do overall have higher rates of affiliation with religions uh, of all varieties, and um, and so you because you know a big chunk of our immigration is coming from non-Western countries where religiosity is much more prevalent, and so many of them are bringing that um, even though the the 
the way that stats can ask the question doesn't suit every religious tradition quite as well in some cases. Um, but, you know, like any number, it's one number. So always take it with a grain of salt. There's always limitations to what something measures, like, like the census. But it's also at the same time, an indication of a kind of larger trend of there is a, a big chunk of the population, especially amongst younger adults now, who have moved away from organized religion. And so, you know, won't necessarily affiliate with a religious tradition and don't do a whole lot tied to a religious group. And you got, you know, there was uh, your speaker talking about less religious socialization. That's the term we use uh, in sociology to describe it. The fact that, you know, there's, they're, they're exposed less to religion as kids. They don't oh. go necessarily to religious services with their parents and so forth. And yeah, that has an impact on how they define themselves as adults. Okay. Elise, I'm going to give the last word to you. What would you like to see in terms of uh, helping settle all these immigrants that we need and, and who are coming? Well, I think, you know, the Statistics Canada report made some big predictions about 2041, which, while it's 19 years away, is actually not that far away. And if we know that we have a growing trend of immigrants, especially those who are racialized in terms of um, from a visible point of view, I think we need to start working now to make sure we have the right support so that these people are welcomed, that they can thrive, and that they know that they belong. And 19 years is not as far away as we think, so we have to deal with some of the systemic issues that are actually, you know, putting people and creating barriers and, and you know, causing difficulties for them to really thrive. Okay, thanks so much, Dr. Sarah Wilkins-Laflamme and Elise Herzig. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. We're taking another break, and when we come back... Two ISIS brides have returned to Canada. They were both arrested when they landed. Uh, We'll talk about, was that the right thing? It was a big controversy for a long time uh, about whether we should be bringing them back when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Two Canadian women and their children have returned home to Canada after being held in a Syrian detention camp for families of ISIS fighters. Kimberly Pullman traveled to Syria in 2015 after marrying an ISIS fighter online. She has appeared in a B.C. court and the Crown is seeking a peace bond. The other woman, Omaima Shwe, was arrested on terrorism charges when she landed in Montreal. So, was bringing them home the right thing? Uh, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's go to Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University, and Dr. Amarnath Amarasingham, Assistant Professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University. Hello and welcome to you both. Hello. So. Hi. So uh, we've been hearing about this for a long time, that Canada should bring these people home and and try them here. Uh, And uh, two of them arrived yesterday. Dr. Carvin, was that the right thing? Uh, I I think so for a number of reasons. And, you know, I can probably hear your audience tearing out its hair as I say this, thinking, you know, here's the liberal professor talking about this. But I actually think there's good security reasons to do this. uh, first of all, um, you know, these women have been in a camp. Um, these camps are not secure places. There's extremists there. Um, uh, they're like just on a health ground. They're not okay. And there's lots of kids, right? Um, and these kids are being, uh, raised in an environment where, uh, with these extremists and all these health problems, even though they haven't actually done anything. So they can be targeted. Um, again, um, if, if ISIS is good at anything, it's really good at breaking people out of prison. So, um, the, the fact that, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, one day the ISIS could actually, like, release the people, uh, and then we would actually not know where any of our detainees actually are. Uh, and finally, I think it's uh, wrong of us to kind of burden the, the Kurds, who were, our, you know, an ally that we were supporting uh, against the Islamic State. We've kind of left them with this problem, right? Um, and that's unfair, uh, it is our, you know, moral and ethical responsibility to bring these people back and charge them with 
uh, offenses where appropriate and to really kind of own this problem. This is a Canadian problem. We should be part of the solution. Well, um, some people say, uh, you know, they should be uh, punished or not in the region where they committed the crimes and, and being part of a terrorist organization is a, a crime. Uh, Dr. Amarasingham, first of all, uh, BC is seeking a peace bond for Kimberly Pullman. What, what does that mean? Does that mean she would not be uh, jailed? So uh, a peace bond is is kind of a you know li- some limitations on your activity, right? And and then the way that's been that's played out in the past with terrorism peace bonds is uh, pr- individuals have been limited, uh, you know, from having social media accounts, uh, talking to other ISIS supporters, uh, traveling to terrorist regions, terrorist controlled regions, um, uh, communicating with people who might have you know who might be radicalized, owning weapons, uh, owning a laptop, you know, things like that, and sometimes um, wearing an ankle monitor. Um, and so that's kind of what the RCMP uh, is hoping for Kimberly Pullman as well. She just came back and they are asking for a 12 month uh, kind of period of monitoring. That does not mean that charges um, can't be brought against her eventually or even during that period. Um, it's just they just feel like um, having her come back to Canada and just letting her go about her day um, is probably not the right move. And so they're asking for some sort of restrictions on her, um, on what she does. Right, because she hasn't been charged. Uh, there's a, a lot of speculation that these two women were brought back because of health conditions, because that is the only thing that seems to have changed in our policy, because all along our government has said it's too dangerous to send consular officers there or whoever uh, would be needed. Dr. Carvin, uh, do you have any insight on how it is that these two got out? Well, I mean, the, the, the government's excuse is, is pretty weak. And I just say this knowing uh, Amar here um, on, the, on the phone line with us actually traveled to the camp himself and met with some of these uh, detainees. So, I mean, if Amar can do it, uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, the RCMP can do it. So um, it's it's not a, a particularly good excuse. As for the reason, I mean, the government has always said, look, um, we have no obligation to repatriate Canadian citizens that find themselves in trouble abroad, right? We have no uh, obligation to put ourselves at risk, and we have no obligation to get you out. Um, and that's, Pretty, pretty much what what the what the lies what they're saying uh, what they're saying. I think the the exception here is like okay, well, we know that not acting means that these people, you know, their their health may deteriorate, which is kind of a uh, potentially a kind of death sentence. In which case, you know, that that could be seen as a violation of of some of their charter rights. So bringing them back would, in that sense, make sense. But then it kind of undermines the logic, really. I think of. Uh, all the other detainees that are being held there. I mean, the best case scenario, honestly, is this, this is a bit of a test case for bringing the rest of the children and individuals back that, you know, hopefully we can have a situation where these individuals, you know, those who should be charged are charged and those who, uh, those children can get like the proper aid that they're going to need going forward. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, this is, I think, uh, explains the, the change in situation. Uh, Amar, uh, did you meet for either, with either of these women? Yeah, I've met with both of them um, in 2018 and 2019 when I was there. Um, and I mean, they were they were struggling with medical issues even uh, back then. Um, <clears throat> one thing to keep in mind, I, I mean, as, as Stephanie kind of alluded to, um, I think there's an assumption in on, on the part of the Canadian public that our problem is, you know, like a hundred armed men wearing suicide vests, right? I mean, that that's not the case at all. I mean, our our numbers are entirely different than other parts of the world. We're talking about three to four Canadian men, 15 Canadian women, now down to about 12. Um, and the vast majority, actually, of Canadians are, are children, right? So we have about 25 kids there, all under the age of seven, or the majority of whom are under the age of seven. So that's that's what we're talking about when we talk about repatriation. Um, I think I think the numbers are important because there's this kind of image of, you know, these crazy ISIS fighters that Canada wants to bring back, when in fact we're talking about um, children for the most part. And most of these children were born under ISIS control uh, through no fault of their own. Their parents, some of their parents took them there. Others were born there. Um, and so that that's kind of the majority of our problem. That's not the same for, you know, the UK or France and, uh, and other parts of the world. But the Canadian problem is very much a uh, children problem 
followed by, uh, you know, 12 women um, with, with only a few men who are still in custody. And, and was it your impression that they were just duped, stupid, uh, or true believers? I mean, one of them was arrested as soon as she landed. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I mean, I, I'm not of the view that, um, you know, everyone went there to get married or everyone was kind of tricked into crossing into Syria. Um, many of them are true believers. They did go there because they believed that, you know, the kingdom of God on earth had been established and ISIS was, uh, the, was, was the real deal and the ISIS caliphate was the real deal and they wanted to go live a kind of pure, um, Islamic life in a pure Islamic environment, right? And, and so that, that part is true. I think, um, that part is also kind of irrelevant for the repatriation debate. I mean, these are our citizens, um, they made, they made terrible mistakes. They joined a terrorist organization and they should have to answer for it, um, here. <clears throat> um, the the answer to that is not to just let them uh, flounder in in these camps uh, in, indefinitely. I mean, I uh, I went there in 2018 October, and then again in 20, uh, uh, 2019 October, and so we're already talking about you know four or five years that these women and kids have been in the camps. Um, and and I used to give these media interviews saying the vast majority of our children are under the age of five. I can no longer say that because a lot of, all of them have grown older in the camps, right? And so. Um, I, I, I do think it's about time that we brought them back and this kind of policy of just bringing two of them back because they were suffering from some sort of medical illness make, it seems pretty arbitrary to me because most of the other women also have other medical issues. A lot of the kids have acute uh, medical issues that they're struggling with. Uh, they survived a pandemic, let's not forget, uh, much like the rest of us. And so um, I, I think just kind of singling these two out for medical concerns uh, doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, Stephanie, uh, I'm going to give you the last 30 seconds. And again, on these kids, like, what do you say? They are obviously going to need a lot of, uh, expensive help when they come back. If they come back, what do you say to people who say, Hey, why, why should we? Well, one of the good news, if there is any in this is that, you know, Canada has spent the last 10 years developing programs to basically help people who have gone down this wrong path. To, to rehabilitate them. And we can also turn to some of our allies. Uh, the Dutch in particular have developed programs aimed at youth um, who have been in these environments um, as well. So it's not like we're going to be starting from scratch. We have programs that we can work with. It may be a little bit expensive, but, um, you know, uh, I think it's worth it compared to having a bunch of Canadian kids grow up in ISIS camps. Okay. Um, no of their own. Uh, People, I know a lot of people wanted to weigh in. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, so you can call back then. In the meantime, thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Carvin and Dr. Amarnath Amarasingham. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, as I said, it's all the time we have. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and you can call back if you couldn't get in or if there are other things you want to talk about, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.